you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verse 15 through 24. The single most important thing that set Israel's religion apart from those of other nations was that it allowed no image to be made of God. Deuteronomy 4.12 and Deuteronomy 5.8 and 9. Images of any creature or even the stars in the sky might be mistaken for the form of God, that's God with a capital G, or a God, little g, verses 16 through 19. God is not to be confused with any part of his own creation. By these commands, he carefully guards his own spiritual nature. If he calls himself jealous in doing so, verses 23 and 24, it is because he fervently desires that his people should know him truly and thus live. We'll begin reading at Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning at verse 15. This is God's word. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over to Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord, your God, which he made with you and made a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Amen. Please turn with me to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 9. Be reading verses 1 through 25. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 25. The conversion of Saul, the Apostle Paul, is believed by some to be the most important event in the church since Pentecost. Luke certainly considered Saul's conversion significant, for he recorded it three times in Acts. Here in chapter 9, in chapter 22, Paul's arrest in the temple, and chapter 26, Paul's defense for Agrippa, before Agrippa. The record of Saul's conversion at this juncture prepares readers 
for the gospel going to the Gentiles, Acts 10. The apostle to the Gentiles, Galatians 2.8, Ephesians 3.8, was preceded in this ministry by Peter's evangelization of Cornelius and his household. The account of Saul's Damascus Road experience may be recorded here also to relate it to Stephen's martyrdom. Stephen's discourse seemed to have spurred Saul to renewed efforts to stamp out Christianity, Acts 8, 1 through 3. If the doctrine generated by Stephen was correct, then the law was in jeopardy. So Saul, jealous as he was, went on persecuting the church, Galatians 1, 13 and Philippians 3, 6. But Saul, the persecutor, was about to become Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. His background and qualifications suited him eminently for the work to which God had called him. First of all, he knew the Jewish culture and language well, Acts 21.40 and Philippians 3.5. Secondly, because he was reared in Tarsus, he was well acquainted with the Greek culture and its philosophies. Acts 17, 22-31. Thirdly, he possessed all the privileges of a Roman citizen. Acts 16, 37. Fourthly, he was trained and skilled in Jewish theology. Galatians 1, 14. Fifthly, because he was capable in a secular trade, he was able to support himself. Acts 18, 3. And lastly, God gave him zeal, leadership qualities, and theological insight. We'll begin reading at Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And now, and now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street, call straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I heard from about 
I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he, is, he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has, and has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Amen. Turn your Bibles to the second epistle to the Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 11 today. Uh, if you don't happen to have a one of the bulletins, you need one because the closing hymn is on the back. There's also an excerpt from our confession there uh, describing what our confession has to say about the work of pastors. And the reason that was chosen this particular week is because this chapter is an example of pastoral care, uh, a, a difficult bit of past, pastoral care. Uh, this is something that I suppose every pastor has to deal with from time to time in one way or another. Uh, Paul is no exception in that. Uh, now, some would say, well, yes, but he's not the pastor of the church there at Corinth. Well, he's the church planter of that church. He's the father in the faith of that church. Uh, he's kind of in the process and, and really being used of God in a phenomenal way to establish the New Testament church in the Gentile world. Uh, and, of course, he's authorized by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit to write to say these things that are recorded by probably whoever's taking his dictation, but perhaps he's handwriting some of this at some point as well. We have reached the point in our study of the Corinthian epistles, and I know it's been a long time, and I don't expect every member's every detail. I suppose what you will remember most is the fact this is a church that seems to have all kinds of problems and all kinds of issues, and it's kind of swept 
back and forth by various winds of doctrine. It's got personalities, it's got factions, it's got schisms, it's got not really crazy ideas, but current ideas. And just kind of like churches in America do today. In fact, I've said more than once that the Corinthian church is the church that parallels the American church the most in our New Testament. Uh, We've reached the point where Paul is going to have to directly confront and expose those who are in that church that are seeking to undermine the ministry of the gospel there. Uh, What he understands and what seemingly a significant number of the Corinthian church don't understand is that they, because they're paying attention to some voices they really shouldn't be listening to, are flirting with spiritual adultery. And many of them are too immature in the faith to recognize it. In other words, they don't, they don't know the Bible they have. Now, because we have a lot more Bible than they had. They don't have an understanding of the Old Testament that we, we should have. They don't have the Gospels yet. I mean, they may have, they may have Matthew, they have Mark, probably not, but they have pieces and portions and various teachers have come through. And their grasp of these things leaves them vulnerable because they're immature in the faith. This this is going on all around us. Let me read you something that came offline, so it must be true. Uh, This is something going on in in England. So it's far away. I mean, what could it possibly have to do with us? This is an official position of the Methodist Church of Great Britain. That's the church, incidentally, that the Wesley brothers established. And that's Methodism. And the Methodists are the ones that pretty well evangelized the wilderness as the American frontier moved west. So our heritage, whether we like it or not, runs pretty deep into early American Methodism. The Methodist Church of Great Britain has completed a revision to its inclusive language guide. Ah. The new guidance urges ministers, deacons, elders within the church to adopt new gender-neutral terminology. Uh, when they, need, they want to eradicate potentially harmful language dedicated at marginalized groups. They really think the church leaders should use the preferred pronouns of anyone in their congregation, and they ought to share their own preferred pronouns, in order to create a safe place so everybody feels welcome. The revised guide cautions against the use of conventional expressions, like referring to one another as brothers and sisters. That's specifically listed. And While preaching in church, we want to take into account the presence of non-binary individuals because they would be offended and feel like outsiders. Now, I don't want to be unkind to anybody, but brothers and sisters are viable terms to describe people. It gets worse. Uh, This guidance extends beyond the clergy to the congregants, to the people in the church urge that they incorporate 
these matters into their own communication with one another. Among the more controversial change is a recommendation that the church leaders avoid the use of the terms husband and wife. Why? Well, there is infinite variety in the way that God's creation is expressed in human life. This is worth bearing in mind as we speak and write. Terminology such as husband and wife may sound inoffensive, but it makes assumptions about a family or personal life that may not be the reality for many people. The words parent, partner, and child are a good place to start. But caregivers far better than parent. Now that's a, a contemporary example. That's probably not what was going on in Corinth. Uh, as we will see, what was going on in Corinth was, a, was far more serious. But if you don't think that's serious... You're not listening. You're not paying attention. And I picked on something from across the water because it's far, far away and has nothing to do with us because we wouldn't fall for any of that, right? Our society is filled with this foolishness. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to this, this section of Corinthians, the Corinthian epistles, and we come to these chapters in which Paul is, is having really to speak directly but in such a way that your spirit can work in the lives of your people. We pray, Lord, that we will be moved by your spirit to understand, for these things to be clarified, for us to see see the issues in contemporary terms and see that your word is alive. It is speaking to us today just as surely as it spoke to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. We pray, Lord, that our own faith would be strengthened and that we would, we would better understand uh, the working of God in, the, in his ministers and his leaders and in, in his people, that, that, that your character would be on display in and through our lives for the extension of your kingdom and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to work our way through this whole chapter. You'll kind of know when we get to the end, when we get to the end of the chapter. So, But we're not going to just drag along. Uh, this was supposed to be two messages. I've really hit on the last half of this a lot over the years, and so I, I think you'll be familiar with it, but you're going to hear it in context today. First, Paul begins by asking for their forbearance. I mean, he specifically does that. He says, I wish you would bear with me and a little foolishness. Oh, so do bear with me. Now, if you know where we are in this, you realize Paul's the one that's been bearing with them. And they're the ones that have been acting foolish. That's why he's having to write this epistle to them. But you notice he's, he's not just, okay, I'm, here's the hammer. I'm going to hit you with it. He's, he, he's thinking about how they're going to receive this, and he's, he's being very careful. Then he's going to share his motive for the speaking that he's going to do. For speaking to them in such a way. He says in verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I did betroth you to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Remember the church is the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And, and Paul is, it was led to the place where he was instrumental in the founding and the establishment of that church in Corinth. And, and they're the bride of Christ. 
And he says, I'm jealous for you because basically you have one husband you're betrothed to and I want you to, I want you to remain pure. And finally, he shares why it's so urgent. Brother Walt pointed out that our God is a jealous God. He's jealous of the affections of his people. So why is it so urgent? Verse 3 and following. I'm afraid that as are in the same way that Satan deceived Eve, that would be by his cunning. And those of you that were with us for a number of number of weeks, a couple of months ago, recall how the serpent initiated that communication with Eve. It was as though he needed some help. You know, did, did God really say? He needed some instruction. He needed some understanding. He was appealing to her ego, implying somehow that she could instruct him, kind of help him out in this matter. What that was was an intellectual snare. And of course, she stepped right into it. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. He's already pointed out in the previous chapter, in verse verse 5, that there are all kinds of arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. And the answer to that is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now he's saying, you know, you're not doing that. Satan tempted Eve with physical fruit and with appeal to her intellect. Paul fears that the Corinthians are going to be tempted by emotional fruit. It's still an appeal to the mind, but it's, a, it's appeal to their emotions through their mind. Here he explains that in the following verses, beginning in verse 4. For or because if someone comes and proclaims to you and preaches to you another Jesus than the one we proclaimed and preached to you, for instance, they may say, well, yes, we, we accept he was a great prophet. Islam does. Islam thinks Abraham was a great prophet, and Moses was a great prophet, and Jesus was a great prophet. They're all great prophets. But they weren't the greatest prophet. That was Muhammad. But they may come to you and say, he was a great prophet. He, he may be a great teacher. He may be a great example, kind of a what would Jesus do to guide your life. He may be a spiritual mentor. He may be kind of a guru to kind of help you make decisions through life. He might even be, he might even be a social revolutionary. Now, beginning last year about Super Bowl time, a series of commercials began to run. They have run for a year now, and I saw one yesterday. And if you spend much time watching sports, you've seen it. Or at least you've heard about it. They're they're all black and white. And they portray, actually they never, of course you don't see Jesus because that would be wrong, but what they portray Jesus as a refugee, oftentimes having to flee in the night and cross rivers and cross through fences, as a homeless man, 
as a rebel against the system, as someone marginalized in society. And every one of those black and white ads ends with a little symbol, the assurance, he gets us. Now, the people behind that, I mean, they're, they're not wicked people. I think they have sincere motives. And I, you can look it up for yourself and figure out who they are. And some of them are, uh, I mean, they're wealthy, professing Christians. And their intentions are good. But those ads are not offering, at least initially, the scriptural Jesus. They're not offering the second person, the Godhead. They're not offering the individual that John is he opened his epistle, his gospel described as the word that was with God, the word that was God, the word through whom everything that was created was created, the one through whom nothing was created that wasn't created through him, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. That's not what's being offered at least initially. It's not offering the one who lived the sinless life you couldn't possibly live. And then died a substitutionary atoning death to pay your sin debt. Simply because he loved you. And so he could redeem you from the slave market of sin. These ads offer kind of a outside the mainstream, but essentially a safe Jesus. A Jesus who loves you as you are, just as you are. In fact, there's no hint of a Jesus in those ads that would say, take up your cross daily, die to yourself, and follow me. This is a Jesus that will make minimal demands upon you. He simply loves you. He affirms you where you are, just as you are. Now, I grew up on just as I am. And that, that is quite an appeal. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong. We, we can only come just as we are. But when we come, a process begins and we're not like that anymore. And it's fair to tell people. In fact, it's essential to tell people, yes, you come just as you are, but you're not going to remain that way. People inherently know that. That's why they don't come. They don't want to be another way. In the advertising world, that's called bait and switch. And that's a harsh term to use for people who sincerely are trying to get the gospel out. But in some sense, that seems to be what it is. But it's not just that. There are whole denominations involved in such things. Offering a a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who doesn't want to offend anybody by suggesting they're either a brother or a sister. Because who knows? They might be something in between and who knows what day of the week it is, which they are. That's kind of where we are in our society. So Paul says, if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed in verse 4, 
or continue, if, if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, are there other spirits out there? Well, 1 John 4, 1 speaks of deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. 1 John 4, 6 speaks of not only the spirit of truth, but the spirit of error. And believers are supposed to know the difference between truth and error. In fact, if you want a simple test, Philippians 4, 8 gives it to us pretty plain. The truth is true. It is honorable. It is just. It is pure, it is lovely, it is commendable, it is excellent, it is worthy of praise. In our society today, it's trampled upon. But it's all those things, the spirit of truth. So if someone comes proclaiming another Jesus than the one you proclaimed, or you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, what is a different gospel? Incidentally, the different gospel is always the same gospel. It's the same difference. It's works. It's, yeah, you're not perfect, but you're better than whomever. You ought to get the break, and God will certainly give you the break. Surely, you're doing the best you can. That has to be enough. You can't do better. Those are all works. And your best is a filthy rag in the eyes of a holy God. And when the scriptures speak of those filthy rags, they're speaking of those special blessings that are in the in the wastebasket in the nursery. That's what your good works are worth. If someone becomes an Offers those things to you, Corinthians, Paul is saying. Conclusion of verse 4, you put up with it readily enough. You accept it. Hey, that sounds good. Well, where's that coming from? Verse 5, Paul says, Indeed, I consider, listen, I'm not the least inferior to these super apostles. Now we have the idea there are people in there and they are they're bright lights, let's say. The word the the word super hooked to these messengers, these apostles, is the word that's translated intensely white, the intensity, intensely part of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. These are individuals who who uh, just shine forth in their personalities, these super apostles. And then Paul begins to describe himself in relation to them. He says, I'm not the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. What they're good at is words, at presentations, and moving people along. And persuasion. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, Paul says, I'm not in, I'm not unskilled in knowledge. Indeed, in every way you ought to stand, I have made this plain to you in all things. You know, how much somebody knows is invisible. What they say, what you, what you actually see them doing, that is visible. What's more important? 
what, what, what's going on between the ears? What's really going on inside the knowledge you can't see? Good biblical example. I suspect Balaam's donkey was not the most beautiful donkey on earth. In fact, he's probably dumb as any other donkey. And good for what donkeys are good for, which when you need one, you need one. Most of us don't ever need one. But man, did that donkey have brains. At least once, he saw what Balaam couldn't see and it saved his life. Imagine that. I think Paul goes on in verse 7. Okay, maybe it isn't my language that I don't talk. I don't talk pretty like they do. Did I commit a sin in humbling ourselves so that you might be exalted? In other words, was it a mistake that I came to you as somebody that really wanted just to lift you up and not lift up myself? And then he says what he's talking about. Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. He's saying, it, it, is the gospel I preached to you any less the truth because I didn't charge you for preaching it to you? He said, listen, I, on verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. You really see the appeal he's making here. The brothers who came from Macedonia, you know, the dirt poor section north of Corinth, the brothers who came from Macedonia, they supplied my need. So I refrained, and I'm going to continue to refrain from burdening you in any way. Now, Paul, this is a, this is a modern term, Paul is not doing what we would call humble bragging. You know, I'm just so humble. I couldn't possibly accept any praise for that. That's not what he's doing. But he is laying out the reality that, you know, he came here and he's done everything he was doing for them. At whatever cost to himself. Which incidentally isn't a bad definition of agape love. He's reminding them that his concern is for them and not for himself. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Caia. He said, I'm not ashamed of this. Now, everybody, everybody can know this is, this is, this is just the way ministry works for me. And why, why do I do this? Do I, am I doing this because I don't love you? He says, God knows I do. The bottom line, he's doing this and putting up with this and striving with this. Remember, he's had to make a special trip from Ephesus to Corinth and it kind of blew up in his face. And so he had to go back to Ephesus and then write a harsh letter that we may or may not have. It was probably harsher than this one. Okay, so he says in verse 12, what I'm doing, I'm going to continue to do. I'm going to do it in order to undermine the claim of those who like to claim and their boastful mission, their boasted mission, that they're working on the same terms that I am. Now basically at that point, he's calling certain individuals who are unnamed here, but the Corinthians certainly would know who they are. He's calling them liars. And now he's going to describe them. Such men, verse 13 are false apostles. The word there is pseudo-apostles. 
the pretend apostles. They are deceitful workmen. They are cunningly deceptive in what they're doing. They they are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he's also pointing out they're good at this. Nobody's saying they're not doing a good job of it. There wouldn't be a problem among you. I, I wouldn't be seeing what I'm seeing if they weren't good at this. They are deceiving you. And they ought to be good at it. He says, verse 14, no wonder. Even Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. So we shouldn't be surprised, verse 15, if his servants can describe themselves as servants of righteousness. What they're actually doing, whether they realize it or not, is they're imitating their master. Kind of like when a bunch of Jews were telling Jesus, our father is Abraham, and he said, no, you're not. Your father's the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. The end of verse 14, Paul states the truth. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In the end, they're not deceiving God. They might deceive everybody, certainly everybody in Corinth, but they're not deceiving God. So verse 16, I repeat, don't think me foolish for this, but even if you do, even if you think I'm being a fool, I am almost reading this literally, even if you do think, well, just accept me as a fool and let me boast just a little. Now, Paul is not a boastful man. So even when he boasts, boasts to make a point, and this is an interesting point he's getting ready to make, he's uncomfortable about it because he doesn't want to boast in anybody except the Lord. He's the one that said, I am what I am by the grace of God. But he is going to have to boast about some things that, some things in his history. Verse 17, what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say, Not as the Lord, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. I mean, he knows that when when the gospel comes into a person's life, one of the blessings that it brings is it washes out all the empty confidence in themselves. All their self-reverential confidence is gone. He said, I'm I'm probably going to sound like a fool when I say this, but apparently you need this. It's important to you. So where is he going to go with this? Verse 18. Since many boast according to the flesh, okay, I'm going to boast. It's the most natural thing in the world for all of us. And, And turn on your TV to any sporting event and see any significant event happen. And there will be somebody pounding their chest, holding their hands out, look at me, give me some more, and there'll be a hundred thousand people clapping and cheering and all kinds of things. It's the most natural thing in the world. And they are heroes in so many ways. So he says, I'm going to boast. Now he's speaking directly to the people. You gladly bear with fools because you think you're so wise. You know, you're really not acting like those Bereans in this. He doesn't say that. But what, what were the Bereans like? Well, they were the Jews that were in Berea that was south of Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, 11, 
Paul says they're much more noble than the Thessalonians, and here's why. Because when I preached to them, they received the word with eagerness. But then they broke out their scriptures and they examined the scriptures to see if the things that I was preaching and teaching were actually so. And what he would mean by that is that, you know, you Corinthians, you're not doing that. These guys come in here with some half-baked other ideas and just pile them on top of the things I preach, and you're just falling them off. This is a continuing problem. You bear with it if someone makes slaves of you. Verse 20, you bear with it if someone... They're basically, they're devouring you. They're consuming you. They take advantage of you. They put on airs around you. It's like they're slapping you in the face. There are people, and they're in every society, they're certainly in American society, who apparently think there's some nobility in being mistreated. That somehow that just that just proves how unbelievable what a what a gentle soul you are. Uh, just to suffer unjustly for the kingdom's sake, somehow that's going to earn brownie points somewhere. False teachers prey on that mentality. They use people. For a number of years, I was I was in what I would call pretty hardcore fundamentalism. And you don't have to be in that very long before you realize there's some, I would call them petty tyrants now. But they didn't seem petty when I was in there. They seemed, they were pretty serious about their business and I'm not saying they didn't go along with it. It wasn't a thing that really appealed to me, but well, they seemed to have God on their side. Churches and denominations far outside of fundamentalism are led with, by petty tyrants. People that will have their way. They're not following Christ necessarily. They're not following Christ's example necessarily. The Son of Man came, Matthew 20, verse 28, or Mark 10, 45, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul says in verse 21, to my shame I must say, I'm too weak for that kind of boasting. Paul doesn't deny he's weak by the world standards. In fact, he freely admits he's weak by the world standards. His point is just the opposite. If we're going to have a boasting contest, let's start. And Paul said, I'll start. Whatever else anybody else dares to boast of, of course, I realize I'm speaking as a fool. I'm going to boast of it. And he begins by boasting of his relationship to the Old Testament. He begins with three points. That he attained the moment he was born. Said, are these guys Hebrews? So am I. So now we know the false teachers in there are Hebrews. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Yeah, Paul's all those things. So what point could they be making? Well, they would probably concede he's a Jew, but he isn't a Jewish Jew. He was born in Tarsus. He's a Roman citizen. He's part of that diaspora, the Jews that didn't stay in the land and were real. 
Those that got out there and absorbed all these other philosophies and cultures. Besides that, how can a Jew be the apostle to the Gentiles? You can kind of see how the argument would go. And then he shifts his argument to the new covenant. He says in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. He said, I know I'm talking like a, like a madman. He is a true servant of Christ, and he's going to demonstrate it by his conduct and what it costs him. Yes, I'm a better servant. I've gone through four greater labors. I've endured four more imprisonments. I've been subjected to countless beatings. I was often near death. Now, that doesn't necessarily make you better than anybody else, but uh, let me just remind you of the details of how this came about. Now, he's about 10 or so years into the ministry that didn't start till about 14 years after his conversion. So he's known Christ about 25 years at this point. And here's the sort of thing that the Christ life's done for him. Five times, verse 24, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. The reason you couldn't lash a man 40 times is because that was viewed as degrading. And after all, he's made in the image of God. That's very gracious of them, isn't it? But five times he got possibly 39 lashes. So it's Three times I was beaten with rods. That's the Roman practice. That's the dowel of whatever size was handy, I suppose. Equally painful. And of course, there's no limits on Rome until, of course, they found out he's a Roman citizen and then they're all scared to death. Once I was stoned. We know about that. That happened at Lystra. And people that know how to stone people to death generally know when they've done it. And they stoned him at Lystra and assumed he was dead, and he possibly was dead, as we'll get into in the next chapter. But after they went away, he stood up and went back into town and strengthened the disciples before they left town. That must have been quite a scene. But it doesn't mean he didn't feel being stoned just as much as Stephen did. Three times I was shipwrecked. This isn't the one that's going to happen when he's out there, when they, you know, when they're going through that terrible storm for two weeks in, in chapter 27 of Acts. Three times I was shipwrecked, and one of those times I spent all night and all day adrift at sea. Now, almost nobody could swim in those days. I mean, naval disasters, almost everybody drowns. And adrift means you're holding on to something. If you go back to that shipwreck in Acts 27, you'll see, grab a piece of something that floats and jump in the water and try to get to shore. That's the way survival worked. In this particular case, he spent a night and a day holding on to something and survived. Going on to verse 26. On frequent journeys. And on these journeys, sometimes he's at sea. Most of the time he's on land, and if he's on land, he's not riding a charger. 
The only time we have any record of him riding a horse is when they're trying, the Romans are trying to save him from the Jews by moving him at night with a mounted escort up to Caesarea. So Chancery's walking. Break out the map in the back of your Bible one day and just see the places he went. And possibly add into that a trip to Spain, because he very likely made one. How many thousand miles did this man walk? Frequent journeys. And as you're walking along and you come to a river, if it's at flood stage, that's a real problem. But if you can't swim, it's a problem anyway. But you got to get across it. Danger from rivers. And of course, every time you turn around, there's a possibility there's a robber there. Danger from robbers. You know, the Jews have been trying to kill him right from the beginning. We read about that even when he was in Damascus. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness where nobody would know. But in the city, of course, the mob can get you. Danger at sea. Danger from people who are close to me and profess to be brethren. There are dangers that are morally charged, you know, people that are really out to get you. And there are dangers that just happen in nature, like a river at flood stage. He goes on and talks about the personal wear and tear. He's bragging about this. This this, this, He's really boasting here. In toil and hardship, many a sleepless night, hungry, thirsty, often without food, out in the cold, exposed to the elements, and hanging over all of those things, verse 28, there's the pressure, and not just the pressure, but the daily pressure on him of his anxiety for all the churches. Well, they're God's churches. They're God's flock. What's Paul worrying about them for? Well, he's, in a sense, a pastor. (laughs) Here's a few examples of the sort of thing that would be on his mind. The Judaizers are spreading a law-infected Jewish gospel throughout Galatia, just following him along, saying things like, you've got to be circumcised first. You've got to come under the Jewish law, and you've got to work your way through Judaism to Christianity. And we're going to show you how. It sounds pretty persuasive. There are false teachers in Colossae. He's having to write them an epistle. They're distracting believers from the person of Christ that John offers to a Gnostic Christ. A Christ who the worshipers of real knowledge desire. There's rampant immorality in Crete. I mean, everybody knows Cretans are liars. So he sent Titus there to try to straighten out that bunch and put some elders in place and help with that church. And... Poor Timothy, he's young, he's kind of sickly. Uh, he's the best I had to offer, so I left him in Ephesus, which is like the pagan center of Asia. They got the magnificent temple there and idols everywhere. Well, he's there dealing with that. Those Thessalonians, I mean, they did send help here. They're so confused about when Christ is coming back. I'm always having to write and try to straighten them out. If they're worried about this, then they're worried about this, then they're worried about this. Not to mention all the dysfunctions and the factions and schisms that are going on among you Corinthians. See? Now what I've just done 
is take all the issues and the problems and the challenges and the burdens, taking them all apart, looked at them separately. But I would point out, Paul's just lumping them all together. And he's simply saying, you know what the Christ life looks like? This is what it looks like. It looks like I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The glory of Christ eclipses everything for Paul. Paul's the one that can write. You know, I, I, I kind of prefer to be dead, to be with the Lord. It's better for you that I live. But for me to live is Christ, and when I die, that is gain. So it's no trick at all for him to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? He's not afraid of dying. Our churches are filled with professing Christians afraid of dying. I've certainly been there. And I've been there as a Christian. But as you mature as a Christian, you shouldn't be. And we have a responsibility to help one another mature as Christians so that we aren't afraid of it. Verse 29, he says, who is weak and I'm not weak? You think I don't understand how you feel? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? Do you think I'm not hurt if you were to drift away from the faith? Paul identifies with these people. He's suffering along with them. He says in verse 30, if I must boast, I'm going to boast the things that show I'm absolutely the weakest among you. My inability. What is what makes the gospel so precious to me? If you'll think about that, the fact that you can't be what you know you ought to be, the fact that you see yourself in those passages in Romans 7 where Paul says the things I want to do, I don't do the things I know I shouldn't do, those I do, and identify yourself there, the gospel will be all the more precious to you. says in verse 31, Whatever you think of me, my words are my ministry. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who's blessed forever, he knows. And he knows I'm not lying. You need a reminder of what a mighty warrior for Christ I am. Let me offer you a word picture of what a super warrior for God I am. And remember... How I started out in the Christian life. I was in Damascus. And I'd come there as the emissary of the Sanhedrin, the chief priest. And I had a written authority to round up believers and put them in chains and take them back to Jerusalem to their deaths for the most part. And after I got saved, I started telling people Jesus is actually the Son of God. So never mind all that. And it got... He got the Jews all worked up. They wanted to kill me. And they went to the king, King Aretas. Verse 32, he was guarding the city of Damascus so that he could seize me and turn me over to them and they would have killed me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped their hands. See, Brother Walt read that, read that to us. The apostle to the Gentiles 
a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he's huddled in a wooden basket, suspended by a rope, hanging outside a window in the wall of the city and being lowered down at night so that he could escape into the darkness. What a warrior. What a hero. What a great man. And what a Christian. What a minister. The Christian gospel, which by by God's grace has been granted to you, The Christian gospel, empowered by the Spirit of God, saves us, forgives us, but it doesn't leave us alone. What we feared, we now embrace. The glory that we once would have despised being identified with a crucified Savior, we glory in. All things have passed away. All things are becoming increasingly New. Repentance is first and foremost a change of mind, but it always results in a change of direction. When a sovereign God opens the door of faith and grants repentance to one of his own, it's life changing. And that's not that's not just the start. It continues to change. We're on a new path, directed, led by the will of God, watched over by our great shepherd. He's promised to never leave us, to forsake us, so we have communion with him. We have communion with everyone else that has communion with him. And when the hardships and the challenges and the catastrophes come into our lives, and they will, when pain, physical, emotional, even spiritual pain enters our lives, We have to recognize that he led us there. It's purposeful. And we know how the story ends. It ends around a glorious throne. It ends in a life eternal. With a Savior who gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father our God, we we thank you for the gift of your word. For the testimony of the Apostle Paul. For the trials he went through. Because they are now being used to demonstrate to us what it means to be a Christian. We pray that none of us will have to go through exactly such trials. But we understand all of us will have trials of our own. And in those trials we pray that we will come to the place where we glorify you. Where we serve you with our whole hearts, our whole minds, our whole beings. For your name's sake, amen.